Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. When police arrived at 3110 Laurel Canyon Boulevard in Studio City, California, they found a disturbing scene. The home's owner, an elderly man who lived alone, was dead in his bedroom. It was clear he'd been viciously beaten, his house appeared ransacked, his body tortured. The man had been found face up and nude atop his bed, with his hands tied behind his back with electrical cord. This would have been a sad scene no matter who the victim had been, but there was something extra heartrending when his identity became known. He was known worldwide as Raymond Navarro, once a top box office draw during the golden age of Hollywood and the first Mexican heartthrob the industry had ever produced. Ladies and gentlemen, we're speaking to you from the Fox Fabian Theater here at Flatbush 11th Street in Brooklyn, where Raymond Navarro, the internationally famous motion picture star, is appearing. This is from a radio broadcast of a stage performance in 1937. I doubt if we've ever seen such a jammed house here. 5,000 people seated in the theater, jammed right to the back doors, and probably 5,000 more turned away during the afternoon. That was recorded 31 years before his death, and although his star had faded over time, much of his mystique had remained. He'd always been known as a talented artist, devoutly religious and devoted to his large Catholic family. But beyond that, he kept things private. His personal life was no one's business. And besides, he reasoned, Audiences shouldn't know too much about the movie stars they idolize. The enigma kept things interesting. He might well have been onto something there, because the discovery of Raymond's body on Halloween morning of 1968 opened the floodgates into his personal life and forever changed how not just his fans saw him, but it also unfairly diminished his filmmaking legacy. It's hard to imagine a world without movies, isn't it? When you meet someone new or want to know someone better, isn't that one of the first things you ask? What's your favorite movie? Most of us can detail our first movie crushes, the ones that resonated so much that we hung the posters on our walls and bought the soundtracks and may or may not still secretly wish Christian Slater would realize that we're soulmates. None of that existed when a young man named Raymond was born in Mexico in February 1899. His full birth name was Jose Ramon Gil Semeniego. He was the fourth child of 13, ultimately, born in Durango City, Mexico, to Dr. Mariano Semeniego and his wife, Leonor. The family was financially comfortable, though that didn't spare them from the high infant mortality rates of the time. Before Raymond turned one, his brother, firstborn Emilio, died. A few years later, his mom gave birth to a boy named Philippe, who likely died of diphtheria at age three, leaving 11 surviving children. Dad Mariano, a dentist, was the son of a well-known physician in Juarez. 
Mariano had received his degree at the University of Pennsylvania, after which he began a successful dentistry practice in Durango, where he married a landowner's daughter. The kids born of that union were Mexican on their father's side and a mixture of Spanish and Aztec on their mother's. After brother Emilio's death around age five of scarlet fever, Raymond found himself the center of attention. He was, after all, the oldest male child in the family, which was an esteemed position in most families of the era, but especially traditional Mexican Catholic families. While Raymond and his brothers would be sent to college, his sisters weren't expected to be overly educated. In fact, that sort of thing was outright discouraged. Girls were for marrying and procreating, or, as in the case of three of Raymond's sisters, entering the nunnery. That fact alone should illustrate how big a role religion played in Raymond's upbringing. More than a quarter of the San Diego children to reach adulthood entered the church and, in fact, throughout his life, Raymond would contemplate taking that path as well. He'd considered it first when he was a young teenager in Mexico, but things there got unstable quickly as the country descended into the chaos caused by the Mexican Revolution. The Mexican Revolution commonly refers to around 10 years, from 1910 to 1920, in which Mexico transitioned from Porfirio Diaz's corrupt dictatorship to a constitutional republic. This is from a video by Captivating History. The revolution that took place was both political and social. It involved the complex interplay of several factional groups. It was extremely violent and bloody. Durango, the town where Raymond and his family lived, was attacked in 1911, but the Samaniegos stayed put. This was a period of good days and bad days, and no one could predict how things would unfold, so while daily life was affected, it wasn't unbearable. Plus, the family was pretty well off financially, which helped buffer them from the worst effects. But then in 1913, things took a turn. Schools in Durango were closed, including Our Lady of Guadalupe, which was Raymond's school. The city descended into anarchy, according to the book Beyond Paradise, The Life of Raymond Navarro. According to the book, quote, a state of anarchy prevailed as rival rebel leaders fought to take control of the city. Houses, stores, and businesses were ransacked and entire districts went up in flames. Durango citizens lived in perpetual fear. Stray bullets killed innocent bystanders even inside their homes. A knock at the door in the middle of the night could mean death to anyone who was identified with the wrong political faction." End quote. The next couple of years was upheaval, with a family bouncing between Mexico City and Durango, sometimes in factions. For example, Raymond and two brothers went with their father to Durango for what was supposed to be a brief check-in on their house. But after they got there, fighting erupted and cut off all communication between them and the other half of the family still in Mexico City. Maybe it's understandable then that by the time the family reunited in the spring of 1915, several of the Samaniego children had relied so heavily on their faith to get them through the turmoil that they were ready to dedicate their lives to the church. Daughters Guadalupe, Rosa, and Leonor entered convents. Raymond would later say that around this time, he began considering a similar path and started acting accordingly, fasting, performing servant's duties, generally behaving in such a pious-seeming way that the other kids supposedly began to sing Ave Maria when they spotted him. 
But Raymond's draw to the priesthood was threatened by two important factors. First, he was drawn to performing. His first love was opera. He was so torn between the priesthood and music that he actually consulted a priest who, as Beyond Paradise says, granted him sanction to make music his life's work. The second stumbling block for priesthood for Raymond was his sexuality. Though he never talked publicly about it, his first known romantic relationship with a man was in the 1910s. Being gay in the early 20th century was already tough, but it had to have been even more difficult for him as a devout Catholic. Whatever his struggles were on that front, though, we can only speculate, because if he ever broached the subject with anyone, they never betrayed his confidence. Anyway, in the fall of 1916, Raymond convinced his mother to let him and his brother Mariano to travel by train to Texas. The two had $100 on them, not a paltry amount at the time, today that would equate to about 2,700 bucks, to get situated once they arrived. The plan was that they would make their way to El Paso where they had relatives. At least that was Raymond's parents' plan. Raymond had another plan altogether. Without telling his folks, he and Mariano left El Paso and headed west to Los Angeles where Raymond aimed to pursue a show business career. His parents knew he had performing on the mind, but his mother wanted Raymond to go down the more dignified path of becoming a concert pianist or opera singer. Neither parent would have condoned a career in acting, and in fact, when they learned that that's what their eldest son was targeting, they tried to talk him out of it. But this is where things with Raymond get complicated. It's clear he was able to really compartmentalize his life, He could be a devout Catholic and tell others how to lead pious lives while also pursuing relationships as a gay man. He could devote himself to his family, and he really did that his entire life, while also shutting down their criticisms of his chosen path in life. And at first, that couldn't have been easy because as enthusiastic as Raymond was about Hollywood, the flip side wasn't true at first. He was going to multiple auditions while he also ushered for a theater. He was taking any sort of extra jobs he could in films. This is true crime YouTuber Brooke McKenna. Raymond generally got positive feedback. He was handsome and affable and most of all, clearly talented. He could sing and play piano and dance. It was this latter talent that got him his first big gig. He worked at a theater called Majestic. And this theater would bring in a woman named Mary Ann Morgan. And she had a dance troupe and she scouted Ramon to be in it. Morgan had formerly directed summer dance programs at the University of California at Berkeley. But since the mid-1910s, she toured the country with her own ballet company. Her productions would usually be performed at vaudeville theaters or as sort of opening acts to feature films at prestigious movie theaters. Now in 1918, Morgan was looking to cast a man for a ballet called Attila and the Huns. She spotted Raymond, who had a few things going for him. While he didn't have much official dance experience, he had some moves. He had an exotic but ethnically ambiguous look that would work for the role, and perhaps more importantly, He wasn't at risk for being shipped to Europe to fight in the Great War because he wasn't American. The U.S. would enter what we now call World War I in April of 1917. The next month, 
all males aged 21 to 30 were required to register for the draft. And in August of 1918, right before Morgan began casting for Attila, the age range was expanded to cover all men ages 18 to 45. That meant a lot of the U.S. dancers Morgan might have normally cast were liable to be sent to war at any moment. But not Raymond, because he was not American. He was hired for the performance and left California for New York, where the show's rehearsals were held. He'd rehearse all day, then work nights as a pastry boy for $1.60 a shift. When the show finally began its tour in the northern U.S. and parts of Canada, it got stellar reviews. A few newspaper stories ran that even included the name Raymond Samaniego. That was all a good start, though it wasn't what Raymond had come to Hollywood hoping for. He didn't want long days touring with ballet companies and performing night after night on stages. He wanted to be on the silver screen. So after a few months on the road, he returned to California and again began taking dance lessons and auditioning whenever possible. To make ends meet, he also ushered at the Majestic Theater in Los Angeles. Through his classes, Raymond met a guy named Louis Samuel, and the two were inseparable for a while. They were an odd pairing. Raymond, an optimistic and ever-hopeful Mexican Catholic. Samuel, a Hungarian Jewish man described as taciturn and distrustful. And beyond paradise, people who knew the two were quoted as calling Samuel overprotective of Raymond. One wrote that Samuel was, quote, insanely jealous of man, woman, or child that Raymond felt a friendship or affection for. He had a sullen disposition and seldom did his eyes stray from Raymond, end quote. Raymond didn't seem to notice. He genuinely seemed to be the type of person who would go out of his way to see the good in others. Some people he encountered found it endearing, but others found that it made Raymond an easy man to exploit. After a few years of odd jobs and bit parts, Raymond Samaniego finally caught the eye of someone who could make a real difference in his career legendary filmmaker Rex Ingram. Quick aside to keep things clear, there are two significant figures in American filmmaking history named Rex Ingram. One was an acclaimed black actor who starred opposite Mickey Rooney in 1939's Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, and who, a couple of decades later, would go on to become the first black actor hired for a contract role on a soap opera. The Rex Ingram in today's story rose to prominence earlier, he was a white man born and raised in Ireland who came to the U.S. to study sculpture at the Yale University School of Art. His first film was called The Great Problem in 1916, which launched his career. Because he started when movies were silent, his background in art was put to great use and made him stand out from other directors. From a documentary, He brought to his films an artist eye. Rex worked harder than anyone I've ever seen. He used to run to the set. Grant Whitock edited Ingram's Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and most of his other major pictures. Characterization was a great thing with him. And also he, he, he created the artistic pictures of the lighting and the dressing of the sets. Raymond had a bit part in Ingram's 1921 film, The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, which is the film that launched Rudolph Valentino to superstardom. This movie was, to put it lightly, huge. 
It was a silent epic war film produced by Metro Pictures Corp and is generally considered one of the first true anti-war films. It was 1921's top grossing movie, was one of the first to break $1 million at the box office. It would actually clear some $4.5 million in its initial run. And more than that, its huge cultural impact showed how important and influential filmmaking could be as a medium. And few would argue that the film would have been so impactful without Ingram as director. He had traces of sophistication that were not seen in films. That's all there was to it. This is Byron Haskin, a cameraman, in a documentary snippet I found posted by the Lancaster Silent Movies and Classic Film Club. The films were just a childlike a fairy tale quality about most of them. They were made to entertain, and that's that. But Ingram got into nuances and values of the story, of the characters that uh, I don't really know any other director reached that deeply. This was the type of film Raymond wanted to be making. And, as I said, he was part of it. As an extra, he can be seen dancing in the background of a key scene. But despite being on set with Ingram, this wasn't when he caught the director's eye. The story goes like this. Horseman launched Valentino into superstardom, which seems to have ticked Ingram off a bit, not because he disagreed that Valentino was great in the movie, it's just that Ingram thought he deserved more credit for helping make sure Valentino was great in the movie. Directors, am I right? Meanwhile, Valentino was one of the most famous faces in the world after this movie, and, as such, he figured he deserved a raise. His next movie was called The Conquering Power, which was again directed by Ingram, and Valentino was insulted that Metro only gave him a $50 a week raise, causing him to butt heads a bunch with Ingram while making Conquering Power. That movie was another success, which gave Valentino the clout to bail from Metro and go to a competing company called Famous Players Lasky. There, he got another $100 a week raise, made the blockbuster movie The Sheik, and never looked back. Meanwhile, Ingram was on the lookout for a replacement. It was around then that he saw a cut of an unreleased movie that Raymond had performed in. Then someone else suggested Ingram check out Raymond performing on stage at the Hollywood Community Theater, which Ingram did, and he saw potential there. It must have felt like the stars aligning for Raymond, who suddenly had this acclaimed director interested in not just hiring him, but in turning him into the next Rudolph Valentino. Their first movie together, The Prisoner of Zenda, didn't quite do that, but it was a start. Ingram did his utmost to transform the inexperienced Ramon Semeniago into the charismatic heartthrob to rival the former Latin lover. Though, in truth, Navarro's persona was quite different than Valentino's. Ramon himself attributed much of his success to his looks. From a short documentary by Motenta People, he said technicians devoted as much effort to lighting him as to famed goddesses of the silver screen like Gloria Swanson. By the time they got through lighting me like a painting, I couldn't turn my head more than a few inches. One day, he complained to the director, I can't act when I can't move. Don't worry about acting, replied the director. Just look handsome. You can act when you get old. Still, some skills shone through. Raymond, who changed his surname to the easier pronounced Navarro at Metro's request, got solid reviews and more film roles followed. 
because the movies were still silent, making Raymond's accent a non-issue and his dark good looks ambiguous, he could be cast in a wide array of roles. With slight tweaks to lighting and makeup, he could play an all-American naval student in The Midshipman, a boyish monarch in The Student Prince, a Pacific Islander in Where the Pavement Ends, a Frenchman in Scaramouche, an Arab in The Arab, but his biggest role came as a Jewish prince of Jerusalem named Judah Ben-Hur, a role that would 34 years later win Charlton Heston an Oscar and probably would have won Raymond one, but the Oscars were a couple of years away from existing when his version was made. Anyway, the story of the making of this 1925 epic is, well, epic in itself. If you're a film history buff and don't know this tale, it's worth the research. This was a hugely anticipated film based on a novel written in 1880. It had already been adapted as a stage play running for 25 years. After that run, the Goldwyn Company bought the rights and pretty much everyone in Hollywood wanted to be part of the movie, including Raymond's mentor, Rex Ingram. But Ingram was snubbed for Charles Braben and Raymond was deemed too lithe and slight for the role, so it at first went to an actor named George Walsh. Filming started in Italy and was just disastrous. Eventually, a new director was brought in, still not Ingram. This time it was a guy named Fred Niblo, who'd worked with Raymond on a couple of other films. Raymond was hired and shipped to Italy before the guy he was replacing, George Walsh, even knew his job was in jeopardy. Though the film ended up being insanely expensive, in nearly $4 million at a time when the average film cost about 160 grand to make, and hit enough snags that a good chunk of the book Beyond Paradise is about its making, it opened to rave reviews, made filmmaking history in terms of gross revenue, and made Raymond Navarro a legit superstar. Between 1925 and 1935, Ramon made more money than any other actor for MGM except for Joan Crawford. Though Raymond was a draw and made good money, it's safe to say that nothing after Ben-Hur rose to Ben-Hur levels. That was a tough one to follow. But he did have a few things going for him, one of which was rooted in tragedy. In 1926, Rudolph Valentino died from a fanzine called Dead in Hollywood. On August 5th, 1926, Valentino collapsed and was rushed to the hospital where he was diagnosed with appendicitis. Surgery was performed immediately. His condition worsened. During the early hours of Monday, August 23rd, Valentino was briefly conscious and chatted with doctors about his future before lapsing into a coma. He died a few hours later at the age of 31. It's not enough to say that Valentino's death rocked the film industry. It rocked the world. It was on front pages of newspapers everywhere. Valentino's premature death led to mass hysteria. And on the day of his funeral, over 100,000 people lined the streets of Manhattan to pay their respects. Women do not love Rudolph Valentino. They are infatuated with what he stands for. They are in love with love. Raymond, who attended the funeral, was as shaken and heartbroken as the rest of Hollywood. It's not clear whether he realized straight away that his career would benefit from Valentino's death. If he did, he was respectful enough not to say so out loud. Which, by the way, leads to another thing Raymond had going for him, his voice. Hollywood was readying to shift from silent talking films. The first feature-length talkie was The Jazz Singer in 1927. 
Raymond, meanwhile, had started his career as a singer and had, at times, debated leaving Hollywood for a musical career. So while some in Hollywood were super reluctant to shift from silent to talking, and Charlie Chaplin's first true talkie wasn't until 1940, Raymond knew that to stay in Hollywood, he'd have to make the leap. Here he is talking to a journalist about it. You see, the talking pictures have brought us the voice, and they will also bring appreciation of good music, I'm sure. Well, I hope so. But before I go, won't you sing one of your Mexican folk songs? Should I? I wish you would. Well, if you can stand it, I can. What are you going to sing? I'm going to sing you an old Mexican folk song. The title of it is, um, I Like All of Them. Me gustan todas, me gustan todas, me gustan todas en general. Pero esa rubia, pero esa rubia, pero esa rubia me gusta más. Muchacho, no digas eso. Naturally, he was initially worried about whether audiences would like his voice. Plenty of stars who'd been huge names in the silent era were run out of town because they didn't translate well on mic. The very first Academy Award for Best Actor was awarded in 1929 to Emil Jannings, a German actor whose thick accent ended his American career. But before you feel too bad for him, know that he was ultimately a Nazi sympathizer who made propaganda films. As for Navarro, his accent was pronounced, but not difficult to understand. It was a given, though, that it would narrow the types of roles he was offered. He was less likely to be cast as, say, Dick Randall, the all-American Navy cadet that he had played in The Midshipmen. But he still had range. And thanks to his role in a movie called The Pagan, audiences had at least heard his singing voice because parts of that film incorporated his singing into the musical score which was met with praise. MGM smartly incorporated singing into his first full talking movie, too, by casting him as a singing French soldier in 1929's Devil May Care. If you're curious, yes, his French soldier did have a decidedly Mexican accent, and no, audiences didn't seem to care. Why would they when he sounded like this? I'm afraid of losing what I found. You. I saw you once in the bois. You were so lovely. I watched you till you drove out of sight among the chestnut blossoms. Oh, Paris in the spring. And now I'm here with you. But perhaps next spring the war will be over. You and I never alone again. I mean, at least my thoughts will always be with you. (laughs) MGM declared Raymond the golden voice of the silver screen. And for years, audiences agreed, making him one of the most famous, not to mention richest, actors of his age, but it wasn't meant to last. To the outside world, it certainly seemed that Raymond Navarro had it all. At the peak of his success in the late 20s and early 1930s, Ramon was earning more than $100,000 per film. He was talented, he was poised, he was handsome and cultured. But when you look back at the interviews he gave, you can't help but notice that he also seemed kind of sad. He didn't say sad things. In fact, it was quite the opposite. He was prone to platitudes, the kinds of cutesy, uplifting sayings that we nowadays would slap atop a pretty picture and post to Instagram. He would say things like, all's for the best. Everything happens for a reason. There are no mistakes in life. 
These are fine mantras, some of which I even recite to myself from time to time. But the way Raymond presents these kinds of thoughts, they just don't ring true. They seem shallow. And that's not just my reading of things. In the late 1920s, Raymond began a love affair with a popular celebrity columnist named Herbert Howe, who also became Raymond's publicist. Howe, whose own sexuality was also on the down-low, helped keep Raymond's under wraps, publicly at least. It wasn't a secret in Hollywood, to be clear, but generally speaking, stars of the era tended to protect each other's personal secrets. They believed that keeping mystique around them helped the industry on the whole, so a lot of the personal news released in that era was really just studio-generated fluff. During Howe's relationship with Raymond, he wrote flattering pieces about his lover about how Raymond's eyes so mesmerize a mood that you forget to listen, for example. After they broke up, Howe didn't out his former lover, but he did hint that he had wanted more from Raymond than Raymond could give. He wrote that Raymond was cool, detached, unsentimental. All Raymond requires of people is that they be a good audience, Howe wrote. Quote, all of his emotions are adolescent. He never hates because he never loves too much. He is not a particularly good companion. As he often said, I have so little to give. His life is expressed in acting, not in thought or conversation. You get the essence of him seeing him on the screen. Off the screen, he's a theater with the lights out. End quote. In other words, he was shallow. Not vain, mind you, not empty. It's more like he didn't feel safe to open himself up. And there's evidence that when he tried to, at least a little, it backfired. And that's what's so sad. Take, for example, what happened with his old ballet friend, Louis Samuel. If Raymond and Louis had a romantic relationship, which seems likely but was never confirmed, they ended it around the time Raymond got his first breaks in Hollywood. The two stayed friends, however, and Louis married a woman and became Raymond's personal assistant. In the early 1930s, at the peak of his success, Raymond wrote a check to buy a new car and it bounced. This made no sense. Raymond had made $125,000 for his latest movie, and a top-of-the-line car at the time was in the $1,500 range. Raymond did some digging and realized it was true. He had only $160 in his bank account. That wasn't all he realized. In 1931, Ramon learned that Samuel was embezzling money from him. Samuel lost all of Ramon's money on the stock market. He hid this from authorities, just like he hid most things about himself. He worried that the fact he'd been robbed blind would reflect badly not just on him, but on his family and his legacy. He went to great lengths to assure reporters that he was well off, rich as ever, everything was fine. He did that even as it became increasingly clear that things were anything but fine. He kept choosing duds when it came to scripts, and he started drinking quite heavily. The drinking padded him physically and aged his face so that, matched with his dwindling box office returns, he was harder to market by the mid-1930s. In 1935, his contract with MGM wasn't renewed. In the years that followed, he took a smattering of roles, and though he was usually praised for his performances, they were never enough to rescue him from his descent into has-been territory. As the months turned into years and the years into decades, Raymond drank more and more heavily. 
His romantic relationships were always fleeting, no doubt at least partly because Raymond was convinced that neither his family nor his God would accept his choice of mate. Because he couldn't open his heart, he was more inclined to open his wallet. He paid for companionship more and more often as he reached his 60s. It was this habit that led to his death. On October 30th, 1968, Raymond got a call from a young man he'd never met before, but who said he heard that Raymond might like some company. The man described himself physically, apparently to Raymond's liking, and said he'd stop by with a friend. That night, brothers Paul and Tom Ferguson arrived at Raymond's Laurel Canyon home. They had heard about the aging actor from another sex worker who had been to the house before and who had apparently passed along that Raymond bragged about keeping money in the house. The idea was to get Ramon drunk, string him along, do whatever needed doing, and then find his hidden cash. Paul was 22 and would later say he'd been hustling since he was 10. His brother Tom was 17. Ramon, always the gracious host, served beverages. Paul had vodka while Tommy drank beer and tequila. Ramon read Paul's palm and told him he had a long lifeline. Ramon served chicken gizzards and ordered cigarettes from the liquor store. Ramon called a film publicist and told him that he wanted to introduce a young man who had star quality. That would be the last anyone would hear from Ramon Navarro. The next morning, Raymond's assistant, Edward Weber, arrived for work and discovered the horrifying scene. He walked in and there were just furniture overturned everywhere. There was also glasses broken. Brooke McKenna again. And when he went to Ramon's bedroom, it was pitch dark because the curtains were still closed. When he went to open these curtains, he found Ramon lying on his back, naked, on his bed, severely beaten to death. He had scratches on his neck and there was blood on the floor and the ceiling, and a tooth had been knocked out. Ramon's hands were tied behind his back with an electrical cord that also reached down to his ankles, and in his right hand, he had a white condom. Paul and Tom Ferguson clearly weren't criminal masterminds because their efforts to cover up their crime were incredibly clumsy and ill-conceived. The scratches on Raymond's neck had been an effort to make it look as though a woman had killed him and scratched him with her nails as she did so. The brothers also wrote on a bathroom mirror the message, quote, us girls are better than, and then a misspelled homophobic slur. Contradicting this attempted staging, however, they also wrote the name Larry down in multiple spots throughout Raymond's house. Larry had been one of Raymond's previous paid companions, and Larry was also Paul Ferguson's brother-in-law. So when the police tracked down the Larry in Raymond's life, it led them to his killers. The brothers confessed, more or less. I mean, they confessed separately and everything lined up, except that each blamed the other for the actual death. But the rest of the story jibed, and that story was that the two went to Raymond's house, drank a lot, then Paul and Raymond went into the bedroom. Paul demanded money. And when Raymond said he didn't have money in the house, Paul beat him because he thought Raymond was lying. But Raymond wasn't lying. He didn't keep cash on him. He paid for his sex workers with checks. He would jot Gardner or Masseur in the memo field. And until he turned up dead, no one paid much mind. Raymond Navarro had simply been an old forgotten movie star. That changed, of course, once the Ferguson brothers went on trial. 
Suddenly, newspapers worldwide weren't just writing about Raymond again, but they were sharing the tawdry details of his life, details he had gone to great lengths to keep private. He also made a bunch of sensational stuff up for good measure. Raymond had said repeatedly in interviews that it was important for audiences not to know too much about the stars they idolized, and that's probably why he spoke in platitudes. The poor guy couldn't be himself at home because of his family's faith-based homophobia, and sexuality aside, he couldn't be his full self in public either, because he thought that his human flaws would disappoint his fans. Paul and Tom Ferguson were both convicted in the murder. Their defense lawyer said in his closing statement that Raymond had brought this death unto himself, that he'd for years been considered a heartthrob by countless women worldwide, and yet, in the end, he was, quote, nothing but a queer. Here's to hoping that guy's in hell. Tom, who had been a teenager when Raymond was killed, was paroled in 1977 after spending eight years in prison. Though Paul had been sentenced to life in prison, he served just nine years. Both brothers would end up back in prison at various times, having been convicted in separate rape cases in the 80s and 90s. But I don't want to end this story focusing on Raymond's killers or even on his death. His story has a tragic ending, no question. But it bothered me while I was researching to see that most of the coverage sums things up as, here was this once world-famous man who's only remembered now because of his death. I think there's another way to look at it. There were hundreds of homicides in and around Los Angeles in 1968, and most of them were barely mentioned in the news. Quite a few were ignored altogether. The reason Raymond's made such headlines is because he had meant so much to millions of people during his heyday. He was a musician, a singer, an actor. He was the first Mexican superstar to hit the silver screen. Even if he didn't acknowledge his sexuality publicly, there no doubt were young men in audiences worldwide who saw him and saw something of themselves in him. And while he struggled, I suspect his struggle helped someone else who came after him struggled just a little bit less. And besides, why end on a down note when Raymond left behind so many beautiful notes for us to focus on instead? You are sweet. Once I was here freely, then the sunshine, my dreams were all my own. Then I awakened, crowds were around me, but I was all alone. Lonely, though my lips were seen. My heart was silent for you. To research this story, I read Beyond Paradise, The Life of Raymond Navarro by Andre Soares, watched more than my usual share of YouTube true crime coverage, and read contemporary news stories.
Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.